Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Ginshi Lin, an assistant professor of neuroscience at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Lin. Hello. So you did your undergraduate degree in engineering physics in China, but then came to Harvard for a PhD in physics, working in Gerald Wagner's lab doing NMR spectroscopy. At what point in your graduate training did you become interested in biology? At the end of my graduate study, and before I came to US, when I was in college, I never imagined myself doing biology. In fact, I actually really hated biology in high school. And the, the training in China is very different, uh, at least then. Um, when I went to school, I was very, well, very focused, and you only study your specialized field. So I never had any biology. And just by chance, discovered there's something very cool about biology that I didn't know about. So what was what 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 happened by chance? I was interested in uh, medical physics. I was interested in doing um, medical uh, imaging using um, fMRI. When I was at Harvard, I took class at MIT, fMRI, mm-hmm. and that was an imaging class, but just one part of the class, they talked about the NMR spectroscopy to look at protein structures. So I thought that was something very cool that I never really knew about, so I did a rotation with uh, Gerhard Wagner at Harvard Medical School, um, and, and I really liked the lab and really liked the, the research. So that's how I got started, and I started doing some biochemistry type of work. And amazingly, I found myself very good at type of work. And also, the lab was at the medical school, so I could know students there and talk to them about their research. And so at the end of my PhD, and I sort of was a bit crazy, I had postdocs line up in structural biology, and then thought about it, and I thought maybe I should take the chance to really find out more about biology. So that's why I sort of put off going to do a postdoc and looked around, thought about what I wanted to do, and decided that I would go for a biology postdoc. More than just biology, you really moved from a from for sort of general cell biology uh, into Mike Greenberg's lab, who who works on uh, genes and molecules which are turned on uh, during activity. So, what specifically attracted you towards the neuroscience subfield of biology? At the end of my PhD, because I worked on molecules, proteins that are transcription regulators, mm-hmm. then I was very interested in transcription regulation. Probably it's because my ignorance, because this is one specific. Uh, aspect of biology that I, I found like that I understood more than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I I looked around. I wanted to use to study transition regulation in different type of systems and in, in a specific biological system. Like um, I looked around like immunology. Um, I looked around other things, and I just found in the end like neurobiology is something that really uh, interests me. Yeah. And also, I think around the time is the reveal on neurobiology, how neurobiology has had gone a long way uh, by applying molecular biology uh, tools to do studying neuroscience. So I found that reveal very inspiring. I thought the human brain is the last frontier in, in science. Well, you're preaching to the choir, I think. Um, so while you were in the Greenberg lab, you identified an activity-dependent transcription factor called NPAS4. Uh, and characterizes its involvement in inhibitory synapse formation. 
Could you describe how you got into this research and, and what it means to us in a little more detail? Back in a way, I feel maybe, um, I don't know what's the right word, like kind of proud that I eventually came to uh, making a connection between uh, inhibition and activity regulation. And when I started out, um, I was interested in um, just look at how neural activity regulates the uh, development of synapses. And um, even though I think transcription regulation has been implicated in a lot of important aspects of neural uh, development, especially early on, um, transcription regulation has not been very closely connected with uh, synapse development. Of course, a transcription is always involved at the background of every aspect yeah. of development. But in terms of more acute aspects of uh, how activity modulates synapses, uh, at that time we were mostly thinking about excitatory synapses. And um, most of the evidence suggests that more at the protein localization, protein post-translational modification than and transcription, the involvement of transcription in this aspect is implicated but not very clearly connected. So I decided to set out to, to make this connections. Along the way, I thought about it, and I thought maybe the fact that um, people haven't found that very close, very um, direct connection between transcription and excitatory synapses, maybe it's because that the system that we are looking, using to assay this um, function, usually you apply you activate neurons and that's a lot of excitation in the whatever system you're using. In fact, um, the natural thing for the neurons to do is to engage a negative feedback sure. mechanism to down the um, excitation. It's more like a homeostatic regulation mechanism. So I thought about it. I thought maybe uh, looking at inhibition is you will, I will be able to find more direct um, connection between activity regulating expression and inhibition. And from that sort of the scale, the time scale point of view, it also makes sense to look at inhibitory synapses, to look at a negative feedback mechanism, because if you want to have the transcription to get involved, it takes time. Yeah. So it allows the system will take time to integrate all the information to decide what to have done. So um, a negative feedback mechanism might fit better. Yeah. So in 2009, you started your own lab at MIT, where you continued to work on NPAS4, amongst other things. And recently, you uh, published a paper showing that NPAS4 is required for contextual memory formation by regulating transcription in the CA3 region of the hippocampus. Do you think this function is independent of NPAS4's role in inhibitory synapse formation, or does this suggest that at least uh, contextual memory formation requires an increase? In inhibitory drive. Yeah, I really like this question because this is um, when I set up my lab. This is one thing I want to find out because during my postdoc work, what I found that the systems that I was using were quite in vitro. So when I had my own lab, I, I decided to really uh, develop a system to really examine activity dependent um, modulation of inhibitory synapses in a in vivo, functionally, behaviorally relevant uh, paradigm. So that's my starting hypothesis. I know MPAS4 is involved in, at least I believe MPAS4 is involved in activity dependent modulation of inhibition. And um, I decided to use uh, the compass, compass learning and memory paradigm. If I prove that MPAS4 
impossible place I need to grow in in that particular paradigm. And then I have a way to test whether the activity dependent uh, modulation of inhibitory synapse is important for, for learning and memory. So that's the starting hypothesis. And I have to say that now actually the picture gets uh, a little bit more complicated because uh, I think we found out MPAS4 role in activity dependent modulation of neural circuit that I, I put it, it's not really limited to uh, inhibition. And MPAS4 itself now becomes a more central player, at least in, my, in our mind, a, a more central player for neurons to really respond to excitatory input. And um, uh, MPAS4 can do it through inhibitory synapses and also by modulating excitatory uh, synapses. So you, it might become more complicated, but we have some evidence suggesting that MPAS4's regulation of inhibitory synapses on the on the, on the part of the circuit that are involved in learning memory might be important. So we are setting out to test that. We finally have the tools ready, and we are actually ready to test that. Um, so you forgive me for asking um, a question of particular interest to me. Uh, as an expert in the molecular basis of inhibitory synapse formation, uh, I was wondering what you could tell me about what we know about the differences between inhibitory synapses onto glutamatergic neurons compared to inhibitory synapses onto other inhibitory neurons. Because uh, on one hand, you know, these synapses clearly are playing a very different role uh, in the context of circuit function, but they uh, share, obviously share the same neurotransmitter, and you might think, share many of the same molecular pathways as a result? Yeah, so I think this is an open question, and I think it really depends on how you look at the system. So if you want to think about a mechanism that's cell autonomous, then you, it won't be surprising to me that excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons share the same mechanism in terms of um, activity-dependent modulation of inhibitory synapses formed on synapses, right? So this is sort of more like a cell autonomous that you don't care about other cells in the circuit. But on the other hand, I mean, excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons are obviously expressing a completely, you know, very different sets of molecules. So their molecular, the molecular basis by which the sort of foundation that they would be working with would be very different. Or at least that would, I mean, I don't know, that would be my thought. So there might be shared mechanism at a cell autonomous uh, level. Mm -hmm. And those neurons are really different, and there might be very distinct mechanisms separate them. Mm -hmm. Would be some general thing or mechanism that governs how a individual neuron responds to activity. There might be some general mechanism, but if you consider them on a circuit level, then I think that they might be very distinct. The mechanisms might be very distinct, and how you really calculate for circuit as a whole how much excitation, how much inhibition. Yeah. In the circuit, and then when when you need to upregulate inhibition, uh, increase inhibition on excitatory neurons, you might need to increase excitatory drive on the inhibitory neurons. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's another uh, the the flip side of that question is about excitatory synapses, which is I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating to think about. But there are already uh, separate mechanisms. Uh, there are, there are a couple of molecules that are implicated in more inhibitory neurons. Yeah, yeah. So a balance between excitatory and inhibitory synaptic transmission is required for normal brain functioning. And in recent years, it's been proposed that the loss of this balance plays a causal role in the development of many brain disorders, including autism and schizophrenia. 
Can you explain this hypothesis in more detail and describe how your own work fits into it? Personally, I think the, the EI balance view is a very simplified view, but it's necessary given there's no uh, unified theory about how neural circuits become dysfunctional in uh, a lot of the uh, neuro neurological disorders. So in that sense, it's a very easy, simplified and easy way to summarize what's wrong within a circuit. But in the reality, just talking about EI balance doesn't tell you what exactly is wrong. Mm -hmm. So um, I sometimes use that in my own writing and in my own lectures. And I think it is true that when you can detect a big difference in the EI balance, and that already clearly says something is wrong about the circuit. For example, in our study, which is actually not published, but I'm going to talk about uh, in my talk, is that um, what we found is a role of MPAS4 in the contextual memory formation, specifically in the CA3 regions of the hippocampus. Yeah. And, and then what we found is um, by electrophysiology recordings, and we found that um, it is true we detect a very drastic change just in the CA3 region of the hippocampus in MPAS4 taking knockout, but not in the CA1 region, hmm. which is sort of consistent with what we saw for this memory test. And what we found is it's actually surprising that inhibition, inhibitory synapses seems to be fine, but it's excitatory synapses that are affected. And when you don't have MPAS4, the system is hit with more excitation, less inhibition. So are you saying, do you, am I interpreting your comment at the beginning about, the, about it perhaps being an oversimplification, that being not in the proper EI balance is maybe more of a kind of high-level phenomenological indication that your circuit is acting differently, but not so much a, a mechanistic explanation for what is going wrong in any of these disorders. Yeah, I think that might be right, because um, EI balance, there are the same disease like autism. Mm -hmm. You get increased EI ratio, sometimes you get decreased EI ratio. Both cases will lead to autistic phenotype. Right. Our understanding of the circuit is still at a very rudimentary level. It's limited by, by what we can measure. Even you detect a growth defect in terms of synapse number, synapse formation, and in the end, how, how do you translate it into a behavior? Yeah, total mystery. <laughs> a total mystery, yes, yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. So in closing, we like to do this sort of series of rapid-fire, quick-answer questions that are more fun than anything else. So if you could speak to yourself as a graduate student, uh, what advice would you give to yourself? I would say the first thing that came to mind is I would say stay focused and keep your options open. Um, the reason I said that was because sometimes in graduate school, you have high points, you also have low points, and sometimes you worry, you wonder whether you are choosing the right career path for yourself. And um, everybody faces, I think most of people face that question, so that's why I think it's important to to really re-examine the choice you make and keep your options open. But in the same time, your goal in graduate school is to get a proper training to get your PhD, so you have to stay focused. Yeah, I mean, I've learned lots of things doing this uh, interview series, but I think the one thing that I've definitely learned is having asked this question of a number of people and heard a lot about various neuroscience uh, professors' backgrounds that there sort of is no uh, standard path uh, to get where you are. I mean, your story is more more than normal uh, than uh, than some than most. Uh, you know, I mean, I, by which I mean, you know, you started, you know, in physics, and then you, you know, were doing NMR, and then you're 
moving over to trans now you're you know doing you know behavioral experiments in mice and looking at memory right so I have to go with what you what you want to do i guess yeah yeah so if you think out uh, across the spectrum of neurological disease what major disorder do you think we will understand well enough to fix first that's a very tough one <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's to fix the disease is uh, harder than understanding the, the sure. disease. Yeah. And I think not a whole, in general, say one particular disorder. I think the the first thing will be cured will be the ones that are maybe caused by single gene mutation. Yeah. And, and uh, with, with mechanisms of the, the protein function very well uh, understood. And then you can go about to, to fix the problem. And you might not really understand fully why the mutation of the protein cause particular behavior. But if you can design a virus to go in and, and replace the gene, then you fix the problem and, you know, who cares? So a gene therapy approach, that's why I think it's very tenable within probably the next five to ten years. And or even better, if you figure out, say, some of the enzymes, if, if the gene mutated it's an enzyme, you might be able to sort of supplement it uh, by right. diet and by some other like metabolic type of mutations. Yeah. yeah. So um, you grew up and went to undergrad in China, but now have been a native of Boston for many years. So which, if any, of the major Boston sports teams have you become a fan of? I, I, I guess I, I, I will I root for all the all the teams from Boston. <laughs> if your mice were suddenly given the ability to talk and they could answer one question for you, uh, what would you ask them? I will ask them what they really remember. <laughs> they really wanted to manipulate the memory circuit. So if there's one thing, one question I can ask them is after we manipulated them, whether they can really... But they're not just behaving because they're not in a good mood or they actually not remember. That's, a, that's, a, that's a actually quite important because we we also, we always use like simplified behavior tests because there's this much you can have them tell you to do, right? They freeze, but do they really remember or they just generally afraid right yeah anything i will ask them whether they can remember <laughs> so thanks for speaking with us today dr Lin. thank you very much yeah and thank you all for listening we hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be uh, dr yishi jin a professor of neurobiology at the university of california at san diego neurotalk is a production of neurite west this episode was produced by erica senor mark Padalina, and myself for more information about neurotalk and neurite west please visit our website at www stanford.edu slash group slash neurite dash west spelled n-e-u-w-r-i-t-e dash west